0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of mayflower ucc church of oklahoma city and to the preaching and teaching of dr robin myers
1: scripture lesson comes from luke's gospel the fourth chapter verses 21 to 30. then he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth they said is this not joseph's son he said to them Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophets accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at seraphath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the synagogue was filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This is part two of a two-part sermon about the first and only sermon that Jesus is ever reported to have given inside the walls of organized religion. It begins well, it ends badly, very badly. Last Sunday, we talked about how well it began. Jesus has quite the reputation. He's come home to Nazareth, and I'm guessing the place was packed. He comes forward to read the lesson, as any competent male member of the synagogue could do in those days, and he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Israel's most famous prophet. I'm sure it was a favorite of the people, who were living mostly in the past, they loved to hear the words of the old prophets as much as we love to hear those old stories about angels and shepherds and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Those were the days when God was doing things. We don't know whether Jesus had requested Isaiah or whether it was providence, but I'm given to suspect that things happen when they're supposed to happen in the luminous web. But here's something that's very interesting to me. This is the only reference in the New Testament to Jesus reading anything. There are some scholars who think that Jesus could not read or write, like 90% of the peasant population to which he belonged, rather that he was a brilliant storyteller in the oral tradition. They think Luke created this story in part to add credibility, the credibility of literacy to what the odds would suggest is unlikely. And I'm not bothered by this, but when I mention it to my students, as I did in a parables class recently, they seem bothered by it. It doesn't fit the image they have of Jesus. He must have been a reader. The truth is we will never know. It it could be that Jesus had memorized so much of the content of important passages that he knew these words of Isaiah by heart. So rather than finding the place where it was written on the page, he found the place where it was stored in his memory The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke knows how to tell a story, and this scene is so vivid that it's a preacher's dream. In those days, you stood to read Torah, but then you closed the scroll and you sat down to interpret it, to bring the message. So just imagine, he walks over to the center of the dais, which was almost certainly elevated, and he sat down, probably crossed his legs, and perhaps there was this pause, a long moment of silence before he opened his mouth to speak, and everybody is staring at him, wondering if he has a good introduction planned. Turns out, he has no introduction at all. Nothing like May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Nope. Not unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. It is nevertheless a great honor to be asked to bring a word on everyone's favorite prophet Isaiah. But I want you to know I'm a bit nervous. Not even a joke to relieve the tension. Abraham, Moses, and yours truly walked into a bar. Nothing like that. No introduction, which would have gotten Jesus marked down if he were in a preaching class. The first word out of the mouth of Jesus is, today. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That might be the most momentous change of tense in human history. These old words, beautiful words, cherished words from the past are now present tense. They are now today. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, not someday, God willing, if the creek don't rise, but right now. Again, I imagine a kind of hard of hearing person sitting near the back saying, what did he say? He said today. Today? What about today? This is the day that Isaiah dreamed about. It's now, it's fulfilled, it's today. Can he say that? I don't know, but he just did. I've been thinking a lot lately about the word now. A couple of weeks ago, I traveled to Georgia to preach in an interfaith service honoring Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It's a night I will never forget. The music was spectacular, and the crowd was half African American, and they are not passive listeners, you know? They let you know how you're doing, and you better have yourself a refrain, you better know how to do call and response preaching. So I picked one of my favorite lines from King's I Have a Dream speech. You may remember it early in that remarkable moment on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. King says, we have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. And then he launched into the first of many call and response moments that began, now is the time. So I built the whole sermon around the idea that we live in a similar moment where now is again fiercely urgent. Racism, homophobia, xenophobia, sexism, even fascism is rising all around us. And I said, you should see us now, Dr. King. We need you now, gathered in this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. We can't just reminisce about the good old days. We can't just dream of better days. Sometimes the word now is the right word, even though it's a dangerous word. Because if Jesus had only said someday, or by and by, or in the fullness of time, the people that he was about to give marching orders to would have found it all, I don't know, lovely, lovely. We all know that church is supposed to be lovely. In my early days at Mayflower, I used to hear people say this to me, usually after a sermon, they would say, Robin, I don't know, the church should be lovely. The decor, the music, the flowers, the the preaching particularly should be lovely. King always heard people advise him to go slow, not to do things now, but he was determined to live in nowness. He said that he had never engaged in a direct action that was well-timed. And the word wait, he said, it rings in the ears of the disenfranchised with piercing familiarity. The oppressed can wait no longer, he said, because justice delayed is justice denied. Now is the time. Today, as Jesus put it, today, God's promises are being fulfilled. If we miss the urgency of today, of now, we're destined to join the ranks of the unready, trying to get to the unprepared and make them do the unnecessary. How quickly now turns dangerous. Well, just read the rest of the story and you will know. After all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth, saying... Is this not Joseph's son? He does something very strange. He preemptively insults them. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Dr. Cure yourself, and you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we've heard you did at Capernaum. And he says, truly I tell you, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb? Well, they haven't actually quoted it yet. And as for doing here also in your hometown the things we heard you did at Capernaum, well, they haven't said that yet. That's what I mean by preemptive insult, which makes me wonder if Jesus had not already been hearing these things and just wanted to put them on notice that he knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're about to say, because he's already heard it. As for a prophet not being accepted in the prophet's hometown, I can certainly sympathize with the hazards of preaching in one's hometown for a long time. That's where people know you, not as a celebrity, but as a real, flawed human being. There really is something to the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. When I was in seminary, I was invited back to preach in my home church, Plymouth Congregational Church in Wichita, and I was not prepared. I was not prepared for the difficulty of preaching in front of people who saw me grow up. I was the kid who folded the bulletin into a paper airplane and launched it from the balcony during one of my father's sermons. I stood up to preach, I looked out, and there's an old girlfriend from high school. I suddenly wondered, oh, I wonder what she might tell people she knows about me. Or maybe it was just being in the place where your parents are, that's icky. And your siblings, or maybe your best friends from high school you used to raise hell with on summer nights, they're up in the balcony grinning at you saying, seriously, you're becoming a man of God? (laughs) When I get invited to travel and speak in other churches, that's way easier. It's way easier to be accepted as a prophetic voice when you're on the road. Around here, people know I drive a Tesla and I play golf. What kind of profit does that? But when I'm in Georgia, I got introduced as a malfunctioning Okie, <laughs> which is a high compliment. That is someone who says things nobody's supposed to say around here and now has a sidekick in the pulpit who is even worse. This is why it's so important to have a partner in life. Colin for Lori and Sean for me. Someone who really knows us. God has given me Sean in case I forget, even momentarily, that I'm no big deal. <laughs> she tells me this with you know, frequent and therapeutic regularity. She just says, Robin, you're no big deal. Now, I guess this would be a good time to state the obvious. I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. That would be a whole different problem. What I am saying is that there is difficulty in trying to say hard things to people who really know you. First of all, for starters, because the truth itself is often fierce and painful. It exposes us as people who would rather hide from it than admit to it. I heard about this patient once, went to see his doctor for a physical and the doctor looked at his chart where the man's height and weight were written and made a few notes and then had to leave the room. And the man sneaked a look at his chart. The doctor had written, the patient is obese. Obese? Well, I mean, he thought, I like to think of myself as a tad heavy, but really, obese? So does he like to have to write that down on the chart? Yes. Perhaps Jesus is looking out at the faces of people he knows are not taking him all that seriously, so he writes a hard word on their chart, a history lesson. God sent Elijah to feed a gentile widow in a time of famine. Why would he do that? Is it because she was willing to first share her bread with him? Yes. When was the last time You took the first step and gave some Gentile in your life, some other, the benefit of the doubt. God also sent Elisha to heal a Gentile leper. These are all Gentiles. There's the rub. Naaman the Syrian. Why would you do that? Well, if you read the story in 2 Kings, it was because he was willing, albeit after some negotiations, to receive God's healing. Healing is very important to Jesus. And withholding healing, even for a Gentile, is a sin. We live in a state where our last governor refused to take money already set aside and paid for by our taxes to help heal sick people, about roughly 200,000 Oklahomans on Medicaid who couldn't afford to go to a doctor. And she was proud of it. Oaky hands, no touch, tainted Obama Medicaid money is the gist of it. And because of that, rural hospitals have closed and people have died. Is that the Oklahoma standard? Here's the hard truth that Jesus wrote on the chart that launched his public ministry. You won't be able to claim God's blessing for your life unless you claim them for other people's lives at the same time. Love is not a zero-sum game. You don't gain your life by holding on to it, protecting it, hoarding it. You gain it when you give it away. I read the story of a young American who got a job as a tour guide for church groups in the Holy Land, summer job. And he would stand at the front of the bus with the microphone, and he would point to all the sites as the bus rolled through the countryside and he was a very conscientious young man he thought he needed to have an answer for every question that the tourists might ask and he got lots of them once when the bus was rolling through Nazareth he pointed out the window and he said this may well be the hill from which people of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 tried to cast Jesus off he just pointed to a hill At this, the old Catholic priest, who'd been asleep in the back seat, raised his head and said, What's it called? And the young man thought for a moment and then blurted out, It's called the Mount of Jumpification. (laughs) Well, all of us, when you think about it, have a kind of internal Mount of Jumpification. None of us like to be told the secrets of our own hearts, but one thing is worse, to live in denial about our own hypocrisy, to never see ourselves as broken or in need of healing, to go to church, to have our ears tickled, but never to feel the sting of the gap between what we say we are and what we really do in the world. Jesus has returned from the desert with this vision, so large and so dangerous that suddenly he sees his own small town as a place of parochial blindness, where people think that their own little lives are at the center of the universe. They talk about God, but there's no God follow through. They praise the prophets, but they do it safely from a distance. The way many of us still talk about Dr. King's work for civil rights, when at the time I was 11, when I first heard of Dr. King, and the first word I heard about him was the inward. That's how he was described to me, as a troublemaker stirring up other inward people in the South. And then somebody took him to the edge of the cliff, it was called the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, and they threw him off. This is the first and only sermon Jesus is reported to have preached inside the walls of organized religion, and it ends with an assassination attempt. In a contemporary Bible translation called The Message, it says at the moment when people were about to throw him off, quote, he gave them the slip. I kind of like that, like Houdini, the artful Dodger. Or maybe he just ran for his life. But this much is certain, he did not run away from the truth he believed had been tattooed on his heart. He just went out and found some non-church people to be the bearers of it. Fishermen mostly, and some other day laborers, and some previously invisible people, including women that people gossiped about, come and I'll make you fishers of people. And they responded not to his gracious words or to his public speaking abilities alone, but to his unconditional love. Each one of them said, I'm in, and I'm in, and I'm in. And he said, everybody's in. They gave their old lives the slip and followed him. To be fair, he did warn them repeatedly that there were many cliffs ahead and many crowds who would want to push them over, but that God would always be with them even as they were falling. And they believed it. And what they gave the slip to was fear. Peace I give to you, my friends, he told them, and it will never leave you alone. Well, of course, the crowd did finally catch up with him in Jerusalem, and they finished the job. In the end, he was not able to give the empire the slip. Instead, the empire slipped him right into a tomb and said, case closed, Jesus' file closed. But as you know, because, well, We're here in a church. Even then, without a breath of his own to draw, he passed through the midst of them and went on his way.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. And a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.